So our kids are leaving for camp. Uh, pray for them this week while they're gone. I have seen their counselors, and it's not pretty. <laughs> ah, I'm just kidding. Oh, wait, except for one of them. Anyway, uh, just keep in your prayers as they're gone. Uh, yesterday, just, what's Sunday? My week has been all messed up this week. I, Friday, I was driving out the parking lot over here, and there's some guy standing in front of our sign. Like I thought he was taking pictures, and didn't, he was playing Pokemon. And I'm like, because he just starts walking away, and I'm like, oh. And then I'm out here on industrial, whatever that street is down there. I'm, I'm driving down it, and there's a guy, and he's walking down on the opposite side of the street, but he's walking down it, and then he walks right in front of me. And I'm like, oh, and he's Pokemon. Seriously, people? I understand, for some of you, it's a cultural phenomenon. I'm too old for it. I never played it, and I just think you're all weird. And I'm not even going to ask if anybody else is with me, because people will raise their hands, and you won't care. So, uh, <laughs> again, make sure you pray for the kids at camp. We want to make sure you guys do that. Uh, if you are newer, newer to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables around the room. Look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes and questions. Go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Version. Click on more, and then events in version will come up by a GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, questions, verses, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me? Read God's Word. This is Acts 9, verse 19b. It means it's the second half of 19 and 20. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. That we would live in ways that lift you up and not ourselves. That would lift up your wisdom and your calling in our lives and not, again, ourselves. That we would live and walk in the ways of your grace, understanding how you have saved us and called us. And be with us today as we learn about this. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is the book of Acts. This is week 26 in the book of Acts. You have just under two months until we're done with the first half. So if you've been here the entire time, way to go. You almost made it. Some of you have had babies during this time, so you have Acts babies. Acts. Acts babies. We're going to call them those. Just like we had like Genesis babies and Song of Solomon babies and... And you got Acts babies. Uh, going through the book of Acts, we want you to see the beginnings of the early church, what God did, how he moves his grace forward. We also hope that one day if you leave the Santa Maria area or you leave Element because I made you mad for some reason, which is bound to happen, by the way, at some point because it just does, uh, you will know what to look for in a church. And we say look for because no church is going to do all of these things perfectly. Uh, obviously, you want to be in a church that loves Jesus and that preaches truth, but also a church that is humble enough to admit their mistakes, but strong enough to stand by the vision that God has given it when everything wants to push against it. Today, we're going to talk about a passion that comes from understanding Jesus and the great salvation that he has offered to us. We believe a church must live in this passion, so the truth of Jesus will live in and through us in a spirit of humility and grace. Now, today is probably going to be one of the shortest messages I have given you in the last two years. I say that, but then I ramble a lot. So it may not, but I really think it's going to be. So Merry Christmas to you. You're actually going to get another one of these at the end of the book of Acts, and I try and tie this back together really quick. But so also today is going to be one of those days I give you some theology. 
Some of you are like, yay, and some of you are like, oh, dear God, why did I come this morning? I get it, okay? But whatever it is, just go with me. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. The Apostle Paul at this point has been knocked on his butt by Jesus, blinded, led by the hand into Damascus, and someone who, have, who would have once been Paul's enemy prays for him so that Paul has his sight restored. While he is blind for these three days, Paul has time to think about who Jesus is because Jesus reveals himself to him. Jesus reminds Paul of who his, who his God was supposed to be and how Paul had been living and what Paul had been doing. And I think that when Paul begins to see this, he starts to have a little bit of remorse for what happened in his life because Paul had been persecuting the church of Jesus. Now, the word for church in in the New Testament is this word called ecclesia. The most common usage of the word ecclesia up until the church started using it for itself was a political term, and it meant an assembly of citizens. What would happen in the Greek world is you would have a herald in the city, and they would go out and they would blow a trumpet, Better than that, obviously, and much louder, kind of like when people complain the guitar solo is too loud, kind of loud like that. And people would hear it, and they would come, and they would join together in the assembly in the ecclesia. A lot like uh, voting today, citizens would come together for a purpose. Now, people outside the church constantly called their gatherings, these assemblies, these ecclesias, all the way until the late 4th century. Uh, The word ecclesia, they actually had an ecclesia in Athens. And it lasted from 508 B.C. to the early 4th century A.D., during the time of Diocletian. Now, again, much like I said voting today, it's just like voter turnout. They'd go out, they'd they'd blow the horn, and only about one in seven people would show up. So these one in seven people, when they had matters for the ecclesia to decide, those one in seven got to decide matters for everybody else. (laughs) Co-democracy. You know, like... You know, like build a wall or legalize pot or take everybody's guns away. You know, it's a, whatever. You know, this is why you need to vote. Some knuckleheads don't decide for you. You get to go out and, and do that. Now, in the classical usage, ecclesia is the most inclusive word that they had. Ecclesia is, is, comes from two different words, which is ek, which is out of, and kaleo, which means to call. So you were called out of or called from, called forth. And this had great meaning to Christians, and this is one of the reasons they took it on, because they believed that they were those who were called out of the world by God to live differently in the kingdom of God. In the, in the Greek world, ecclesia was never used for a gathering of a religious group until Christians took it on themselves. Like, even today, like now when we say the word church, we have so taken the word on them, when people think of church, they think of Something like this, right? I mean, I know Hoosier sings, take me to church. It's not the same thing. If you ever heard, maybe you don't know. Anyway, but, you know, when we think of church, we, we think of this. When the Old Testament was translated out of Hebrew into Greek, it was this translation called the Septuagint. And when they came through, there's this, there this Hebrew word, and it's called kahel. And it's like, how are we going to translate this? Because the word meant an assembly of the people. Uh, Genesis 48, verse 4, has this idea of the assembly of God's people. And so how are we going to do this? And they decided that when it was an assembly of people, they would use ecclesia for that. But when it was a place, like where they gathered together, they would use the word synagogue. And so you get into the Greek New Testament and you see the same thing. When it refers to a place where they're gathering, it's synagogue. When it refers to people gathering together, it is the word ekklesia. ekklesia. And so this word ekklesia comes to be used 23 times in the book of Acts. When Jesus shows up, as Paul is heading to Damascus, Paul has these letters to go into the synagogues to try and find the people who called themselves the church in these synagogues to root them out and take them back to Jerusalem. In Acts 9.4, Jesus says to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Again, this tells you that Jesus so identifies with his people, with his church, with his ecclesia, that an attack against it is an attack against him. And that, again, should bring you great comfort because God notices when you are attacked for his name. In Acts 9, Paul's life begins to change because he understands what Jesus has been doing. And as soon as Paul gets it, as soon as he believes, he prays, he is baptized, and this is then what happens. Acts 9, 19, and 20, which you read at the beginning. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. So where does Paul go to preach this message? I just read it. Come on. Synagogue. There you go. Why? Because it's a gathering of the ecclesia. It's a gathering of the church coming together. The the people of the Lord, the assembly of the Lord coming together. You are here today, and this is not church. A building is not church. What we do this morning is not church. You are the church. We are the church, the gathering of the people of the Lord. And again, synagogue is where they gather. The church was actually the people. And Paul starts preaching something he probably never thought he would preach, and that is Jesus is the Son of God. And the preaching of Jesus as the Son of God is what makes the church what it is. Verse 21, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called on this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? See, these people are like, wait a minute. What is this guy doing? Wasn't he coming here to stop the people from doing exactly what he is doing? They're like, mind blown. This makes no sense. What is going on? Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer, our Savior. There becomes a new sense of excitement in the early church because the guy that used to want to kill us is now on our side. It'd be like Hillary Clinton joins the NRA. And he'd be like, wow, look at that. That's amazing. It'd be like uh, Donald Trump goes and helps out in a soup kitchen. He'd be like, wow, he's helping out in a soup kitchen. Like Bernie Sanders opens a savings account. <laughs> Something like that. See, first service got that one to you. I don't know what. Anyway, Paul, you got to understand, he wasn't really on anybody's side but Jesus' side. I mean, too often we want to come in and draw a line. So God's on my side, and, and this is why we're doing this. That's a horrible way to look at it, because there is really only one side. And it is God's, and it is not yours. People have murdered other people claiming the name of God. That is taking God's name in vain. We do not get to drag God into our causes. There is one cause. There is one, it is God and his glory. And out of that comes everything else. It starts and ends with God and his glory, which results in good news to God's people. What does Paul preach? He is the Son of God. Why? Because that brings glory to God. That's it. And when I say that, a lot of you don't get that. Because you've grown up hearing that. This is really the first time in Christianity this title started to be used and understood fully. And today we say it because that's how we all just, oh, Jesus, he's the son of God. And that, but we don't really understand the depth of what that means. I mean, it starts right here and comes out of, I believe, the Holy Spirit's guiding, but Paul's passion for knowing the Old Testament scriptures and then beginning to know Jesus as he came to know Jesus. You move from verse 20, Jesus is the Son of God, to verse 22, proving that Jesus was the Christ. What it shows you is that Paul is putting all of these things together in a way that we understand the promises that came about in Jesus. It's important because a lot of Jews at the time, they are looking forward to this Messiah to be a military leader who would beat up all their enemies and set Israel as their own kingdom again. 
I talked about this a couple months ago. In Acts 5.36, it says, For before these days Thudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Thudas said, I am a Messiah. I am a Christ. Thudas Christ. No? Okay. I, I think, every time, it just sounds like a good band name, right? It sounds like, never mind. Okay. So he gets a bunch of people to follow him and fight for him. He claims, I, I can knock down the walls of Jerusalem. He claimed that he could part the Jordan River. So he gets a following, leads an insurgency against Rome. He ends up being captured by Romans. They decapitate him in Jerusalem in front of the crowds that followed him. Acts 5.37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. Judas Christ. That is not something that just sounds like it kind of flows out of your mouth, right? So he is also killed by Rome, but he got a following that said, we don't need to pay taxes. Nobody gets worked up over taxes. People follow him. People follow him. And they again kill him in Jerusalem. Anyone who claimed to be a Messiah would be dead very quickly. I mean, how do you know if you're the Messiah? The conventional wisdom is you get a following, you take on Rome, and if you win, well, you're the Messiah. There you go. We'll establish you as... But how do you do that? It's like the lotto. You can't win if you don't play. So you got to play and get in there, and then you die. And, and that, that's the whole thing. If you died, were crucified, beheaded, whatever, you were not the Messiah. That's the conventional wisdom. There were, that we know of, at least 18 different, gave it my best shot, Messiahs in Jesus' day. They all died. Paul used to believe... Killed, crucified, equals not the Messiah until he meets Jesus, meets Jesus on the road as he's going to Damascus. And when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he goes on then for that point to prove that Jesus is and was the Messiah because of the crucifixion and resurrection, not in spite of it. And if you go through all of Paul's writings, what you see is he keeps coming back and said that the Messiah was going to have to die and rise from the grave. And he starts to prove who Jesus was as the Son of God because of what Jesus did. Paul will do this by using the title Son of God. Now, in the New Testament, you typically see two titles side by side. You see Son of God and Son of Man. And when we hear that, we usually think like Son of God is refers to Jesus' divinity, and Son of Man is like his humanity. Like Muhammad Ali had like, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Float like a butterfly is his footwork, and sting like a bee is when he rope-a-dopes and punches you in the face. Right? But for this, you know, Son of God, Son of Man, they were both terms of divinity. And people understood Son of Man. Like R.C. Sproul, he writes this. He says, The chief significance of the title is that it refers to an Old Testament personage, a heavenly being who dwelt in the presence of the Ancient of Days and was sent from heaven to descend to earth for a mission. So they all kind of understood Son of Man and what that meant. And so the Son of Man now, Paul will talk about how he sends you on the same mission that he was on to go and speak about the kingdom of God. But Paul starts with Son of God because it's deeper and it's much more profound and he teaches and he defends and he preaches this. Son of God was used four different ways in the Old Testament. And the first way it was used, it's used of of angels. Angels are called sons of God. They're created beings, but they're not divine. In Job 1.6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. That refers to angels. It was also used of the nation of Israel as a whole. The nation of Israel is called the son of God. God redeems that nation. He adopts them. He calls them out. He brings them to himself. The whole corporate nation, son of God. Exodus 4.22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. Kings in the Old Testament were sometimes called sons of God. 
uh, in Psalm 82, verse 6 and 7, mockingly, God says, You are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. And God's like, you think you're something? You're not. That's how it works. And then you have the Messiah uniquely as the Son of God. The Old Testament walks through some of these things, but you see it much more fleshed out in the New Testament. In Matthew 7, 17, verse 5, uh, God says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It is spoken of in a singular, unique relationship. Mark chapter 9, verse 7, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Paul uses this term to bring home what God has been doing throughout the course of Jewish history. I mean, the early church had an idea of this, but they never really were able to flesh it out the way Paul did. This is why they needed a Paul. I mean, Paul is a brilliant rabbinical scholar understands what rabbis have said about the Old Testament for a thousand years. He knows the Old Testament inside and out. They needed him. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles are persecuted, they're flogged, and yet they praise God by saying this. Acts 4, 24 to 26, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings in the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Anointed is the word for Messiah, his, his Christ. So this is a quote from Psalm 2. It's a, it's a word-for-word thing out of Psalm 2 of a messianic prophecy. So the church had an understanding of the fullness of Jesus. They never really put a title to it, though. Paul comes in, and he uses Son of God to incorporate it all together. Scholar, teacher, believer, Paul does this. Now, the Jews always focused on these verses about the Messiah's victory, smashing his enemies to pieces. And if you notice, as the church today, we have kind of fallen in the same trap. Because we think Jesus is going to come back, he's going to smash our enemies, he's going to let them know that we were all right. That's how the Jews felt. They respond just like we do today. But they all forgot those darker areas where the Messiah is going to be defeated and rejected. Paul sees this and he understands and he pulls them all together because he wasn't afraid to look at it. Psalm 87, verse 38 on, is a psalm about this Messiah being defeated and rejected. He essentially says, you know, why has this gone so wrong? Why is the king and his people rejected? Isn't the person who does right, aren't they always supposed to win? Paul sees this and fuses it with this messianic understanding that Jesus is going to suffer as the true Son of God. And Paul will connect this in his writings with Son of God, with Jesus' obedience going to the cross and his resurrection. All of this, the full understanding of obedience to the Father. In the scriptures, the idea of sonship is usually related to the idea of obedience. And I know when I say the word obedience, we're Americans. In American culture, we hate the word obedience. We're America. We're free. It's like, I'm going to drink beer at 2 a.m. and light up my fireworks. Woohoo! America! Right? That's, that's what we think because we're like, hey, we're free. We can do whatever we want to do. Paul, what he does is he seizes the, seizes the obedience of Jesus. And he says, this is what brought about this sonship. And there is nothing sinful or ugly about the word obedience. It's actually a beautiful word. In Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Which means the streams can rise and the winds can blow and everything can beat against the house. But when everything is done, it will still stand. Because we have been obedient to Jesus' words. In John 8, Jesus says to the religious leaders, he says, you are sons of your father, the devil. Why? Because they were disobedient to God's call. 
And so Paul starts and he fleshes this out by teaching that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God in the sense that he, of all people who have ever lived, was completely obedient to the Father. And because he was sinless, he has the title Son of God. In his ministry, Jesus not only bore our sins on the cross, but lived a perfect life in obedience to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit in order to restore fallen humans to their original state of grace. And it is not only through the grace of God that humans are then saved, but it's through that grace that we live day by day by day and are sustained day by day by day. Paul understands this grace probably better than anybody else. Jesus, as the unique Son of God, brought righteousness to him, just like he brings righteousness to all of us as the Son of God. We now get to be adopted into God's family because of what Jesus did as the Son of God to bring us in. That's the gospel. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death we should have died in order to bring us to God. Only God can fulfill the demands of God, Son of God. John 3, 16. I always call it the football verse because if you watch like any Super Bowl, there's some dude in blue hair on the side of the football field going, John 3, 16! Right? And we're like, well, I don't know what in the world that means. John, well, This is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, for years, until you got modern translations, which I think translate the word better, you had the only begotten Son of God, which confuses a lot of people. If you ever run into a Jehovah's Witnesses, they're thoroughly confused with the word begotten. They think it means that God made Jesus, or because he was born, he wasn't really God from eternity, or, or something like that. That's not what it means. I mean, Paul tries to flesh this out better for you in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8. through 8, He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, and form of God translates to very nature of, that he was God in the flesh. He says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, there's the word again, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Former God, very nature of God, humbles himself, becomes a man, was obedient to God. Jesus was God in the flesh, son of God. Now, the early church even made a decree to talk about this and sing about this so people would know. It's called the Apostles' Creed. This is the beginning of it. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of his Father before all the worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. Begottenness, what it refers to, is the eternal relationship that the Son has with the Father. He is the only one who was ever uniquely the Son of God. And so when Paul goes into the synagogues and he preaches to the ecclesia, the gathering of the church, what does he preach? Son of God in its fullest understanding because he now understands what all of his brothers were missing. Got it? Like, no, listen to the podcast. Do it all over again. Verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man who made, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who live in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Paul is excited. He has a passion of what he now understands. And he wants everybody to understand it. He goes to the synagogues, lays out the case for Christ long before Lee Strobel ever showed up. Okay, 
They ask questions. Paul would answer those questions. Jesus is now our high priest. He will forever be our high priest because he is eternally alive. The high priest in Jerusalem, he's just a man, but Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus, our great high priest, as the Son of God, gave Paul a mission and gave all of us a mission as well to speak about this with passion. And people were amazed, but it didn't last. Verse 23, when many days had passed, as time does, the Jews plotted to kill him. Why did the Jews plot to kill him? Because of what he's proclaiming. Jesus is the unique son of God. The Messiah's job isn't just coming to destroy Romans. The Messiah's job is also to save us and Romans. Well, how dare you say that? We've got to get rid of this guy. And this is still the same thing that gets people angry today. This unique, exclusive claim that Jesus is the son of God. This is what we preach. There is no other way. Jesus is the Son of God. He brings a relationship between God and man. We preach Jesus as the Son of God. Verse 24, But their plot became known to Saul. While they were watching the gates, they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. At this time, a lot of homes were built into the walls of cities. So they take Paul, put him in a basket, lower him out so he can run away and, and be safe. I think it's really amazing that you have Paul who writes most of the New Testament most of it, he's remembered and venerated above most of the apostles, starts his ministry by running away and being lowered in a basket out the window so he can get away. I am sure that Paul thought, if I get this, other people will get this. Now that I'm just going to explain it, and everybody's going to get this message I'm proclaiming, surely other people are going to get it. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, there is a day when you believed in Jesus. And hopefully, you are really excited about it. And you're like, man, if I get this, I want to tell people about it. They're going to be like, oh my goodness, they're going to be like, just like me, so excited. And what happens? Most of them don't care. They're like, so, whatever. You're like, no, look at this passion. And eventually, your passion starts to fade because no one is as excited about it as you. Guys, don't let your passion fade. So one of the things interesting about Paul is this, this happens, but his passion doesn't really fade. I mean, almost to show, I think, sometimes in this, is that human pride and boasting is always turned on its head so that God is the one who is glorified and his glory always shines through. I mean, next week what you'll see is that Paul's passion, it's not diminished. He's going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to start meeting some of the apostles there, and they're all afraid of him. They're like, think it's like some ploy. He's going to get inside, find out who we all are, and arrest us all. So they're really kind of afraid of him. They send him again to Caesarea and then over to Tarsus. N.T. Wright says there may even be a bit of irony at the end of chapter 9 because it wasn't until Paul left that the rest of the believers could have a little bit of peace because he's so like, we're going to talk about this. We're going to go, Jesus. And like, oh my goodness, who brought this guy to the party? Really? <laughs> this guy. Now, really for us, you know, when you think of Jesus and his claims, what are you passionate about? Where, where has your passion kind of been pushed back because other people weren't as passionate as you? Think about where it's kind of faded a little bit. I mean, I know you're not Paul. I know you're not educated in Judaism at its highest levels. Most Americans today don't even understand Judaism at all. But you know what you have? You have a first-class education in American culture because you live in it. You know Facebook and Twitter, and some of you guys even know other things that I don't know how to use, and then that's okay. Uh, you know the Big Bang Theory, not, not the scientific theory, but the TV show, because you guys talk about it. You know, you, some of you guys even know How Harry Met Sally. I mean, you, you know some of these things, and it makes you qualified to speak about Jesus into our cultural context. All of us. I mean, the truth of Jesus does not ever change, but the cultural context does. 
It does. And so we must be a people who still speak of the unique Son of God, who came to restore relationship with God and mankind. And when that is restored, we can have restored relationships with other people as well. See, like Paul, if God has saved you, be passionate. Be excited about what he has done. Speak of it. Tell your story. Maybe one day you'll have to be let outside from someone's window in the back of their house so people are when they're chasing you down. How awesome would that be? You're like, not so awesome, but okay, yeah, I, I get it. And it's not because people are mad at you because you're telling them how to vote or lifting up your political candidate. It's because you are telling them about Jesus as the unique son of God. It's a fearless understanding of the relentless love of God that has sought you, sought you and brought you in and loved you. And you start to speak about that. That we don't run away from the call. We run to the call that he has placed within us. We have been called to speak about him with passion as the unique son of God. This is part of what is our obedience. I mean, we are saved by grace. But in that, God calls us to a human responsibility, our obedience. We should be mindful of our responsibility, and that is to speak of the one who has rescued and saved us. God does good to us every single day of our life. We should be people who respond by walking with him. I mean, we are told that we love because Jesus first loved us. Why, why do we love? Because it's a response to what he's done. We bless because he's first blessed us. Everything that we do is because of what he has first done to us. We walk with him. We stick close to him. We don't wander off because our ideas are crazy and his are good. So we stick with him. We proclaim the unique son of God out of love and obedience just like Paul with this passion that he has given us so that we as his people can speak about the wonderful goodness of a God who has rescued us. Why? Because Jesus is the unique Son of God. When we talk about communion every week, it is the understanding with Jesus as the unique Son of God. You break that cracker like his body was broken. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Why? Because the unique Son of God came and lived and died and rose from the grave to give his righteousness to us so that we can have a relationship with God again and relationship with others again. This is what we preach. It, I mean, again, think about your passion. You know, we, we all get passionate about a lot of stuff. You know, whether it's our favorite sports teams, our favorite TV shows. Yeah, if you talk to Jason Hilton, he's like really excited about guitars. Michelle's really excited about indie music. You know, it's like it's hipster. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like we're all passionate about something. And I think we should all be a little more passionate about the God who has rescued us. And the God who has redeemed us. You know, in, in a way that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's like if you're, if you're talking about your, your favorite hipster band or something like that, you don't just work it weirdly into conversations like, my dog died. Have you heard about this band? You know, I, mean, I mean, sometimes Christians do that when we talk about Jesus. We just say it in the weirdest way possible. It's like, I'm so sorry. I just talk about Jesus. It's like, oh, the Dodgers, they want about, really, have you heard about Jesus? It's, we do it so weirdly. I mean, you, you put it, in, you live in such a way people see who Jesus is, and with that passion, when something's going on, you get to speak directly into that. People will notice a difference about your life when you live with the passion for Jesus, and then you get to speak that in ways that become very coherent, again, because you live in the cultural context that they are in. And so you speak about Jesus as the unique Son of God that has saved you. Why are your, your relationships the way that they are? Why do you have the hope that you have even in the midst of everything falling apart? Why? Because Jesus is the unique Son of God that has rescued and saved you. That's 
what we speak of. The band's going to come up. As they do, you're welcome to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back if you need prayer. I mean, maybe you know you have lived your life in a way where you just simply think that the Son of God was this ideal that you had to live up to, not realizing the Son of God is the one who paid the price for your sin, the one who has called you into relationship, the one who has lived the life that you should have lived and so died the death that you should have died, so that you can simply trust your life into his hands. And if you have never understood it, they'd love to pray with you about that. If you have a prayer request about anything, they'd love to pray with you about anything as well. Uh, there's offering boxes in the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. Uh, there's some food in the back. Grab something to eat, meet some other people. Uh, hopefully when you do, you'll read some of the sermon notes, and you'll be able to go through and ask some of those questions and go a little bit deeper. You know, honestly talk about what are you passionate about. What are you more passionate about than Jesus? And I know if you're a Christian, you always feel guilty saying, oh, nothing, it's Jesus. Well, then you're a liar too, okay? You know, just be honest enough to say what it is and begin to work through those things. You know, and maybe how can your passion be something that you can actually go into and speak about Jesus as a unique son of God there? So that all that we do in our lives is about lifting him up and honoring who he is because our great God has first loved us and sought us and bought us and brought us home because he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us how to be a people who live and walk in ways where you call us into honoring you by speaking of you as the unique Son of God. That you would move us to see what our passions are when they are above you. So we would simply trust you as our Redeemer, as our Savior, as our King. That we would see you as you truly are. Not how we have deemed you to be. But as you have revealed yourself in Scripture, as your Spirit reveals you to us and our hearts. Have us live lives that honor you because you have saved us, because you have rescued us, and teach us to be a people who worship you as the unique Son of God with a passion that speaks boldly about what you have done and what you continue to do. Move not only our hearts, but our lives to reflect your goodness and your grace. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.